Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway & Sons and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is percussionist and composer Stuart Copeland. If you still think of Copeland as the progressive drummer for the seminal rock band The Police, that's so four operas ago, in his words. Copeland's second act as a film composer and performing arts collaborator has been unfolding for over 30 years. I interviewed him five years ago following the premiere of a live scoring of MGM's 1925 silent epic Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ, at Norfolk's Virginia Arts Festival, which Copeland wrote, arranged, performed in, and set to his own cut of the film. In our interview, Copeland speaks to the hey-I-can-do-that aesthetic of rock and roll that makes the genre accessible. But when it comes to The Police, a trio of virtuosos, you probably can't do that without a lot of practice. To better understand Copeland's multi-genre, worldly aesthetic that he now brings to his orchestra music, it's helpful to take a peek into how he expanded rock drumming by avoiding the call signs and defining characteristics of rock drumming, often while borrowing elements from reggae. Here's Chuck Berry's Roll Over Beethoven, a classic rock song with a classic backbeat, which means you hear the snare on two and four. Well, I'm gonna write a little letter, I'm gonna mail it to my local DJ. Yeah, it's a jumping little record, I want my jockey to play. One of Copeland's biggest innovations in rock was to delay the arrival of the backbeat in the song when he didn't issue it entirely. Here, in the police's breakout hit, Copeland hits the kick drum on the and of one and the two for a reggae feel. He modifies this in the verse and then finally brings in the backbeat in the chorus. Rocks! uses the same strategy with an even stronger reggae feel and can't stand losing you. hi-hat on the one, a kick drum on the and of two and three, and a rim shot on four gives us this elegant groove. Well, 
Okay, let's jump to the 21st century. Here's Stuart Copeland discussing his music for Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ. This started out as a touring show. Yes. In 2009. Yes. And it was in Latin and Aramaic. It sounds fantastic. And whatever language of where it was playing. When it played in London at the O2, it was in English. Uh-huh. And since they couldn't get Sean Connery or anyone else of note to be the narrator, they had already bonded with my narration that I did so that I could write the music. I had to do the narration, do all the voices, do all the... I didn't have a movie to work with. I just, all I had was a script. And so I had to act it out. And I got directions from the director about how long it would take for different things to happen. Forty Romans charge on and horseback, beat up a bunch of people, kick ass, take names, take them off. Let's give that 37 seconds. So I imagine 37 seconds. 37 seconds. Okay, now i got a bit of dialogue. So I do the dialogue. Judah, you asshole. You know, masala, I'm going to kill you. And including all the women's parts and everything. And the narration. And so Judah beheld Jerusalem for the last time. Ooh, that's good. When push came to shove and they couldn't get Sean Connery, they hired me to narrate the thing, which was cool, because I got to come out in the O2 arena on a horse, do the narration on, on horseback. And the best part was that I just came out in the beginning, and then the show starts, and now it's all pre-recorded, and I'm backstage in my dressing room or in the skybox watching the show, and it's all pre-recorded until the end of the first act. I go, and so da 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 So let's fast forward to what I witnessed last night. That came out of of this original show. Was a lot of it the music that you had used? Yes. Okay. The themes, at least. Yeah, exactly. The main themes, the, the pirate battle, the chariot race, but in a way, more importantly, the character themes and the theme themes, the friendship gone wrong, Mm -hmm. the jealousy, Mm -hmm. the spiritual element. And, of course, all the characters. We had a nice tune for Masala, poignant little melody for the Virgin Mary, some big fat chords for Jesus Saves. film, which wasn't even my idea. It was my manager, my flinty-eyed manager, Derek Power, <laughs> who uh, said, look, that music, you got to play concerts, you know, and how about this? How about, you know, because I was saying, okay, concert, cool, I like music, get into a little program, and have some images, but he said, check out the movie. And that's when the connection between the movie and the music began, because I could see all those scenes and hear my music on them just perfect. And the film itself is really powerful. Well, the original film is almost twice as long. Right, so you cut it down to a very manageable hour and a half. There was two major plot points that I had to ride over, uh, hoping that people already know the story. But apart from those two points, I think everything, the through line is complete. Something that surprised me uh, last night after the show, what amazed me is the the appreciation of the film. And wow, that scene where the guy, oh my God, I thought Mm -hmm. they were good. People responded to the movie as a movie, the same way they would respond to the latest CGI movie. And I'd forgotten about all that. The reason that was surprising to me, shouldn't have been, was that I was amazed by all that three years ago. 
And then after working with it and working with it, now, at the point now, I'm, were you amazed by how there wasn't a big white splotch in Mary's face in that one shot? Were you amazed by, you know, cause I've been into the frame and they, you know, were you amazed by the contrast and the, uh, you know, that, you were um, focused that you were on a frame by frame for by that yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I've forgotten that the movie itself, regardless, yes. has an impact. It's not at all over the top. You would think that it would seem maudlin or too much, but it really doesn't. It's just very strong and, and moving. When you say it's not over the top, Goldthar <laughs> 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 the Barbarian. <laughs> yeah, it is so big and huge, and impressive, and moving. But occasionally, there's a shot which reminds you of the sensibilities of a very long time ago, yes. almost a hundred years ago, ninety years ago. But sensibilities that still resonate. I think it speaks too to the power of these silent films. Which, mm. which now, when we think of silent movies, we dismiss them as amateurish and well, comic. My thought before seeing this film was like the Herky Jerky, mm-hmm. uh, Charlie Chaplin. It's, it's, it's good for comedy, but you know, to be serious, to be really dramatic and emotional. Wow, what a surprise! Yeah. And by the way, there's a whole genre of these things. You and I, me, I, I'll only speak for myself. Bone ignorant now educated, there are a lot of these movies of that era that have real power and real nuance um, working with the technology that they had at the time. itself, I think what your score does more than anything is a remarkable slow burn of building of tension. Oh, cool. From beginning to end. I mean, certainly there are denouements as, yeah. as scenes end, but you've been doing this orchestrally for a while. Yeah, I don't it, get to be a beginner anymore. Right. <laughs> you know, rock star writes opera. Uh, yeah, that was 20 years ago, four operas ago. Uh, <laughs> I'm supposed to sort of know what I'm doing by now. Right. So the shift in dynamics between writing for orchestra or for, for rock trio, do you use the same strategy to build tension? No. No, no okay. not at all. No. Um, there are some strategies from rock and roll that I brought to the show. Not so much to the movie, but to the show. And that did affect, actually, of course, that does affect the movie. I sort of have, after 50 years on stage, uh, an idea of the voodoo, of the kinetic ritual of a concert performance. And I think it's very important. I'm always uncomfortable in classical concerts. In between the movements, there's the silence. Because where I come from, it's much more of a two-way street. Because the level of proficiency of the musicians in rock and roll is so much lower, and the accessibility of it to the audience is much greater. There's a more of a two-way street. I could do that. You know, the punk thing came along. Part of its appeal to its fans was that 
that could be me. I can do that. That bonds them with it. And so that two-way street involves noise from the audience. Mm -hmm. And the noise, not only does it give heart to the performers, but it also feeds back on the audience. They hear each other. And, you know, so a, a lively, noisy audience even if there's some poignant melody that I wrote that they, you know, they're all clapping, but wait a minute, you cover it. I don't care. The important thing is a response, a two way street. And that's something that I bring from rock and roll to orchestra music, you know, and I'm not sure where the word classical fits in, but I work with orchestra. It's orchestral, you know, but let's talk about the musical language, which was very interesting. I mean, we had, there were some Eastern modalities. There was, That's where I come from. That's <laughs> there, one of the places that I come from. Of course, there was, there was a rock sensibility there too. There was not one backbeat. That's In true. 90 yes. minutes, not a backbeat. But what specifically for me it recalled was some of the black exploitation films of the 70s. Wow. Like I'm thinking of Shaft. Yeah. Just this, oh, this real, oh, real thank rise. You, thank you. Yeah. I'm humbled. <laughs> together as a musical language because you are clearly drawing on many different things but it's still coherent within itself how is that something that you're able to look after well the professional hired gun film hack composer actually has more chops than an artist by necessity you are taken by your employer your boss man the actual artist um, the director Two places that you wouldn't instinctively go, and you have to learn how to pull the emotional heartstrings with music. You have to learn not only which chords and what melodies have these kinds of effects. It's not just happy, sad. It's happy with a little bit of sadness and just sort of a, a, whim, a slight whimsy there, but underlying a portent of doom. You know, and you've got to get these quite complex emotions for directors who have complex scenes, and so you really have to learn a technique in the workplace, which is better than learning in school, in my case, 20 years before the mast, um, of learning how to make music do what I need it to do, not what I want it to do, not the beautiful song in my heart, but what I need it to do. I know i got to make the music create this effect. I need power here. I need it to turn into jealousy there. And a film composer has to learn these things, and not just musically, but instrumentally. And that's where I learned my orchestra chops. Film takes you to every kind of music, jazz, techno, pop, everywhere. But the one consistent thread through most music in film is an orchestra. Because directors and moviegoers are sort of trained that an orchestra sounds like a movie. Mm. And, and for the director, it, you know, it sounds like a movie now. You know, My first score for um, Francis Coppola. Rumblefish. Yeah, I did... A score for him and show it to him. So it's all going great, but where's the movie? You know, so I had to go out and that was my first experience with, with a chart. 
um, after, I don't know how many, how long I'd been since getting out of college with what I'd learned about music and harmony and putting notes on the page, never used a single bit of it for all of my rock and roll career until the other end, when I came out the other end and Francis turns around and says, we need strings. <laughs> and was that close to hiring some arranger to come in and put strings on my stuff. You know, I got it. Right. You know, <laughs> Please let me handle this. Well, I got the, yeah, strings, <laughs> you want strings? Yeah. Strings? I, yeah, right. And so I got some guy to come over, um, and, you know, actually a horn player, because all horn players work with charts, you know, even if they're rock and roll cats that I can, you know, relate to socially and culturally, they, they do charts. Here are my chords. Put that on strings. And he did. And um, so the first session was kind of amusing. Because uh, the guys all come in, they're all setting up stuff. So I, you know, it's kind of a blues riff, and I'm talking to them verbally. And then you kind of get into this thing, and that that part, that right there, it just cuts kind of a groove. Just sort of hang on that there. And if anyone wants to like, just take a solo, just add some kind of. And he's like, "Show me on the page." And, and they're all looking. <laughs> yeah. And I could see that this wasn't going very well. And I'm sort of, I go back to control, and I'm like, "What? This guy's just some dead fish. Jesus mm-hmm. Christ!" Mm-hmm. You know. Okay, run it down. Bang, bang, bang. Holy shit, because in rock and roll, you figure it out, you play it a bunch of times, you negotiate, every, you know, the player actually creates their own part, pretty much. And this concept of the page, where you put it on the page, and they play it like that. And I don't even have to come out of the control. Hey, yeah, great guy, right? Yeah, play the chart. Of course, I'm a social animal. I like to go out and hang with them and actually learn from them, see how the parts that I wrote lie under the hand and so on, you know. As a rock and roller, is it limiting at all to have to quantify every 16th note on a page? Um, or does it just make you more aware of It's different. It's, okay. It's not limiting. For instance, for the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra in um, Liverpool, who commissioned a percussion concerto. Next up on my docket, okay, got me a percussion concerto. Uh, you know, let's write um, 16 minutes for big orchestra and... What do they got? They got three percussionists and timpani. Okay, let's go. I had just finished a piece for the Dallas Symphony for gamelan and orchestra. Mm. And in that case, the gamelan was these five guys in Dallas who have been working together for 20 years, going out to Bali and Indonesia and Africa. And they're kind of a world thing, but their specialty is Indonesian music, Javanese and Balinese. And they have this incredible collection of gamelan bells. I could say, hey, look, one of them plays darabuka. Great, let's have a darabuka song. He brought down the house with his darabuka, improvised. And they all, one of them plays traps drums, you know. So that was, that was a lot of fun. Go to Liverpool. So you got your three guys. Anybody play bongos? Anybody on traps? No, 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 no. Uh, we play the traditional symphonic percussion instruments: the tam tam, the bass drum, grand casa. We can perform on the cymbals, the tam tam, and the triangle. I'm making it sound much worse than it is. <laughs> the, the usual concert percussion. Yeah, uh, I'm making it sound terrible. It? But the cool part is, and you ask me whether it's limiting or liberating. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a good discipline to work. Okay, I can't just give myself. I have to write every note they play, and I have to work within those instruments. That's what I got. I don't have this incredible sea of gamelan stuff to play with. I've got those. And so that discipline means that I can write a piece that actually is performable by any orchestra. doesn't need a Darabuka guy or anything. And the discipline, I think when you constrain art, you intensify its power such as in poetry, when you impose a, a rhythm or a rhyming scheme on language, 
somehow it distills and concentrates the emotional power. And in blues, when you limit it to three chords, and you know somehow that distillation to to operate within the, that constricted per, set of parameters somehow makes it gnarlier. Was that the case for this film? Because you knew this is the edit that I'm working with. Yeah. These are the scenes. Wow. Having said all that about yeah. discipline, this was the first movie I ever scored where I'm the director too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, of course, I'm not the director. It's not my movie. It very much feels like my movie because I had to cut it down and curate every single shot. But it isn't my movie. That's the reality. But the the feeling of working was that there's nobody in the room. I, there were no uh, notes. I didn't get notes from anybody. <laughs> Except my own crew. Which can be dangerous. There are some real moments of epiphany in the film, you know, both biblically and colloquially. Um, Colloquialistically. Very good. You do an excellent job of leading us to those moments. This goes back a bit before about building tension. I just wonder if we could get inside your process a little bit. Were there certain beats meaning moments that you would work toward? Yes. You you knew where your climaxes were going to be. For instance... There is a series of climaxes towards the end. There's the race. He, he, he wins the race, mm-hmm. and you need to feel the power of he crosses the finish line. And right after it, there's another climax, which is his victory march. Mm-hmm. So I've got to get, and then I've got to pay that off in a way. The next 16 bars of him doing his victory lap is kind of the payoff for that. But after all that, now we cut to gloom and doom. He's all lonely uh, and feeling empty inside after his great victory. And from there, it builds back up. But the scene where he saves, you know, he, he arrives to save Jesus. How do you like that? Uh, <laughs> with his armies and stuff. And Jesus says, no, I came not to destroy lives, yes, but to that, save them. That's a quieter moment, but equally, equally yeah, important. Yeah, and it builds up to that. Then it builds up to the leprosy healing. And those are two ramps on the same theme. And then... When it pays off the leprosy, okay, now we're heading to the climax of the movie. But those two scenes to get us there of, of meeting Jesus and being stood down by Jesus, and then Jesus heals his family, those have got to be maxed out. And so you look for a moment of repose after a big mm-hmm. climax like that, and there isn't one because we're on the ramp to the payoff of the whole movie. And these are just things you have to work with and, and calculate to a certain extent and a lot of the time I'm writing the music and when I'm not writing the music I spend a lot of time thinking about writing them, thinking about where the music needs to go as strategy not the I hear a tune part, but <laughs> hmm, I've got to somehow back it off here because that shot there I want to land on that shot what's going to get me to that shot there and in that scene of the saving which of the shots is the money shot which is the one where the peak should land on and uh, for me, it's where the sword falls from his hand. That's where we're getting to. The whole thing, this, he's raised the army. Throw down, and, throw down your sword. And the sword goes down. That's the destination, that shot. And then straight back up again to the healing, where it goes to silence, actually. After all that banging and clattering, that moment of the healing is actually, I think, three bars of dead silence. So musically, it, it seems to be a challenge of, of hitting these cadences, hitting these spots, but then, as you said, staying on the ramp yeah. toward a, a grander... Well, there are ramps within ramps. Mm-hmm. It's tough. That's why they pay me to pay <laughs> <laughs> I set you up. I set you up for that one.
Europe's Ventur. Do you know this guy? This Estonian composer. No, I don't. Um, many moons ago, he did an orchestral piece with, which basically had a drum set yeah. in it. But, I saw uh, a Steve Reich piece with two drum sets mm-hmm. and two bass players and two guitarists. I might have even been four guitarists, and that's too many bass players. Two drum, you know, and, and the first part of the piece. I think, dude, uh, that's not how you use bass. I mean, it's very it's nice try. You know, I, that's not what the drum set is for. Uh, you know, and I love the within forty five seconds, uh, and I've got that face that you put on when you're entranced by Steve Wright's music. I'm very susceptible to his music. So, it, even with totally wrongly used rock instruments, uh-huh. still works. Exactly. Same with Philip Glass and Mishima. Mm-hmm. He also has drum set wrongly used. Yes. But, oh, it's beautiful, and it what's beautiful is about that he approached that instrument not the way I would have as a drummer. He approached it as somebody who just hears the sound of it, and I wonder what I can do with that. And people from outside the normal use, the um, you know, the range, the uh, of the instruments, come you know, kind of is inventing the wheel for themselves. It's going to be interesting, and those are two cases. And I sometimes dare to hope that my callow use of orchestra, while similarly wrong in so many instances, will have a good effect. Great. Got a story? I got a story. I got a story, man. (laughs) Cool. You've been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard clips from Stuart Copeland's orchestration to Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ, courtesy of the Virginia Arts Festival. We also heard clips from The Police performing Roxanne and Can't Stand Losing You off of Outlandos d'Amour and Wrapped Around Your Finger off Synchronicity, all on A&M Records' Universal Music Group. Finally, we heard a bit of Chuck Berry performing Rollover Beethoven on Chess Records. Our intro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at listenmusicculture.com. Our outro music today is The Police, performing Voices Inside My Head from the album Zenyata Mondata on AM Universal. Questions for the podcast can be sent to info at steinway.com with the subject heading Soundboard. Thank you for listening.